Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm excited to have here a special guest today, Spencer Gordon Sand. Spencer is the founder of Spencer Ventures and a partner at Lofty Ventures. We're going to talk about a lot of things related to Web3, NFTs, Magic the Gathering cards, and a bunch of other stuff today in today's podcast. So welcome, Spencer. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm to share my story and, uh, and learn a little bit more about yours as well. Yeah, well, let's just dive in. I think you've got a really great story. Maybe we should start where... Um, what, what are you doing today? I guess maybe you could start with Spencer Ventures. And if you're going to meet someone on the street or like at an event right now, how do you introduce yourself and what do you focus on today? Yeah. So, I mean, so I run Spencer Ventures, which is a digital asset fund that's institutionally backed. Um, so we're long with NFT exposure and, um, a big part of what I do is helping sort of my investors, my LPs learn about web three, learn about the NFT space. Um, and then also, you know, actively trying to make plays to generate returns. But um, yeah, it kind of depends. I think a lot about one of the interesting things about working in NFTs, the way you talk about what you're doing really changes based on audience. So if I'm at a family office event, for example, um, the way that I talk about NFTs might be more of a slant of relating them to something that's more understandable, like like venture investing or, um, you know, art collecting. Those tend to be more relatable topics, digital collectibles, et cetera. If I'm with, you know, a crowd of like true NFT Web3 DGENs, it's maybe something more about like how I view macro sentiment around like NFTs relative to other crypto asset classes. Um, and so I think that's one of the like interesting things about this industry is people can sometimes have really visceral reactions to, you know, NFTs as a word. And how do you uh, frame a conversation with someone that's most productive or most interested? And what, what I've also found has been like, I think there's a lot of people who have gut reactions that are very strong to the concept of NFTs, but then are also have like this underlying curiosity because I think a lot of people with digital assets in general tend to like, there's a part of it that they don't get and they're almost afraid to ask. And, and they've been sitting in this comfort zone of, I don't get it because it's wrong, but like maybe I don't get it because there's something more. And really truth is usually somewhere in between where like, yeah, there is some stuff that maybe is a little bit weird about this space, but also I think a lot of people just are, haven't gotten why it's interesting or important yet. I mean, I think there's like a, lo a level of like kind of slang jargon gatekeeping in the sense that people who are deep in the space speak sometimes like in a whole different type of language where someone just trying to get into things, it's not necessarily like an easy onboarding experience, like culturally, I would say. Um, and when it's so like when you mentioned yeah. to like, to, to, you're right. Yeah. And, and when I think about myself and if I just met you, what Spencer Ventures means to me, like what I would think in my head is like, okay, does that mean... And I'm thinking the other example I could think about, I know this, I think this fund shut down, right? But, but the Starry Night fund, the VVD um, NFT like investment fund, right? Like that's what yeah. I think about when I think about, okay, so Spencer Ventures, what you're doing is accumulating a sort of bundle of NFTs, like making bets on like, okay, I, we're gonna, let's buy like five CryptoPunks or these art pieces from like, uh, and in a way like a venture style, you're betting on things that you think are gonna appreciate value over time and focused on, because uh, then the next question I'd be asking myself is like, are you focused on like PFP NFTs, you know, like different types of NFTs, like in the art space, I see you have an awesome Zaid Kersey um, piece behind you, but like when you, cause, cause I think like maybe to, for the audience or for my own personal interest, I'm like, those are my next questions, right? Is that the right way for me to conceptualize what Spencer Ventures is? And then where do you double down in terms of like your investment thesis and NFTs? Yeah, so I think that, the, that you're thinking about it conceptually in the right way, where I think that there's like a bigger macro thesis about NFTs and then how do you make bets within that? And I'm going to say like, you know, there's tons of different approaches as there are with any asset class, with any collectibles of like how you do this, right? So I'm going to share my way of thinking about this. And, you know, it's my fund. I named it Spencer Ventures for a reason. Like this is my thesis on NFTs. 
So yeah. I think this, I think there's a, a bunch of different ways you can look at what's going on. One way that I think you look at it is um, I actually, I'm going to push back on the digital art first thesis of NFT. So I think that when you look at the NFT space, um, these are access tokens. These are immutable on the blockchain access tokens. Um, and so when you look at it, let's say you had a, a private country club, for example, right? And you had a key that gave you access to that private country club and everything that was involved around it. You'd expect the key card maybe isn't like a plastic key card like you get at a Motel 8 with a you know pizza advertisement on it, right? Like the key card to your $100,000 a year country club would likely be really nice looking. And so I think in many ways for a lot of NFTs, that's the degree to which art is impactful. Like you, if you have a key card to a luxury experience, that key card should have something that feels luxurious on it. And there is this part of digital identity where like NFTs, um, ha you know, people use them as PFPs, et cetera. But I think that like what I'm most interested in is what is the, what is that access key card giving you access to? Like, what is that community? What is that infrastructure, right? So for example, like Board Ape Yacht Club, um, you know, yes, it's a picture of a monkey, but you're not really just buying a picture of a monkey, right? You're buying access to a community. Community has some really cool people in it. You've got Snoop Dogg just went on their podcast. You've got like, met some really crazy people throughout it, right? They're building IRL clubhouses, right? They've got the one they're building in Miami. I think they're probably going to build some others. You've got lifetime access to like essentially a Coachella adjacent thing, right? Snoop and Eminem headlined the last eight fest. So once a year they're doing eight fest, which is essentially just like a big concert, right? So, and then lastly, you've got this other side concept, which is like a metaverse play and you've got, you know, your character becomes something in the metaverse. And so you've got these many different axes, right? You've got PFP on Twitter, you've got IRL clubhouse and community, you've got a uh, music concert once a year, you've got, and so when you put all those things together, like the degree to which the like art is the thing you're buying, I think is, is like not that great with say board apes. Now there's some stuff that is just art, right? So, um, if you look at a Fidenza, which is art blocks, like that's just art and it's art for art's sake. And I think there is a place for that. And art for art's sake tends to do well in bear markets because people in bear markets don't like execution risk and art for art's sake has less execution risk than like, say an actual um, asset. But this is like a long-winded answer to your question. And so I think the answer is that we don't really yet know what the best use case is for this technology, right? Like an NFT is just like, I can verify you own this thing. Now, in terms of PFPs, there's like a spe spectrum of within that club, right? Like if I'm a member to the, people do this with Amex cards, right? Like what's the big flex is having the black Amex card, right? You, do, you, you don't have the silver, you don't have the, the, the rose gold, you got the black one, right? And so people segment within like something like an, an art matters in that segmentation, same way that like a black Amex card matters over a different colored Amex card. And most of what you're paying for in the like $7,000 a year subscription for a black Amex card is the fact that it's a black Amex card, right? Like you, you get these other perks, but really what you're there for is the flex on the haters that you've got this. And so like some of NFTs is that. Now there's other things where it's just like someone's building a video game. The NFT is an asset that has specific utility in that video game, right? Like there's, there's all these different theses. And so one thing that I think a lot about when I'm making NFT investments, and I'm bringing this back to your original question. I know it was sort of gone on a tangent, but one thing I think about when I'm making NFT investments is if I'm going to buy a project, I want to be able to say, okay, if like, if NFT's best use case is X, then this is the play. So for example, if NFT's best use case is IP, I think the play is Pudgy Penguins. Why? Pudgy Penguins CEO and founder has said that he is building an IP rights marketplace for his holders. And he is going to license IP from his holders to make toys. And he has a history of selling toys very successfully, did like $500 million in D2C sales at his past companies. Like 
for me, if, if, if IP around the actual like pictures to play, that's, that's my thesis, right? And so I'm going into that investment under that thesis. If we're building a metaverse, like it's gotta be other side is my opinion, which is a Yuga Labs company, right? And so I hold a lot of other side assets. Do I think that we're certainly building a metaverse and that's the whole thing that's going on here? Like, I don't know, maybe not, maybe, but if we are, that's the thing I want to be holding, right? And so I think that's how I think a lot about this is like, I'm taking like eight to 10 total bets of like maybe NFT's best use case is this. And if that's the case, going into the next bull cycle, these are the companies that are furthest ahead. And when I think about that, like, this is different than if you were like, let's say a Web3 investment fund or venture fund, because I think like in my head, this exact sort of type of asset you're going for, specifically just NFTs, like I can't think of many other funds that are doing that. Is this something that you see becoming just more common or are there, are maybe there are dozens of NFT funds I'm just not aware of right now. There's like NFT investment as a focus area. Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, it's a really tough, volatile space to invest in. It's also like the regulations around are kind of complicated. Like, like everything that I have to do with my fund administrator to my audit to like, ta it's all bespoke, right? And like, that's kind of a huge pain. I think it's also like different than a lot of people are used to. There, there's certainly people with lots of capital. I think there's even a lot of people who trade with lots of capital from other people that aren't so on the books or institutionalized. I, I think that we'll see more adoption coming. Uh, my view of this is, is sort of the same as the coin market, right? Like 2016 cycle, all the crypto coins pumped. Everyone said it was a bubble. They went down. Everyone said, I'm correct. It was a bubble. And, you know, it's over, right? Then they went back up in 2020 and it said, suddenly it's not a bubble, it's a cycle. And when it becomes a cycle, not a bubble, then institutional adoption comes, right? I think we've seen that we're at the same moment right now for NFTs. It went up. Everyone called it a bubble. It popped. Everyone was like, I was right. It was a bubble. It went down. I'm betting on like the macro bet that I'm making is that in another macroeconomic bull run, we see NFTs run. Right. And so then it goes from the narrative of being just a bubble to being a cycle. And I think when we see the narrative switch from bubble to cycle, that's when you see the formalized institutional fund adoption come in. But I agree. There's a lot more, especially the crazy amounts of just like Web3 venture funds, but there's not as many coin funds. But it, it's never really made sense to me. Like I come from that world and I'm like, I just don't get how they have a good enough return profile to make those investments. And, and the fact that you decided to do this, like, kind of makes you a unique person, right? Like, you come from, like, the venture world, like, decided to do this. Like, not many people are going all in on the NFT space. So, because maybe, can you, can you tell us a bit more about Lofty Ventures, what it is, your experience there, and then even maybe slightly before that, like, how did you get into venture investing in general? Yeah, so I, I have a little bit of a weird path. So I didn't go straight from um, high school to college. I took time off. I was fencing competitively, so I was doing the World Cup circuit for the U.S., traveling around. Um, I was super broke at the time and uh, I didn't have a degree. Started working at a startup because that was kind of where I was able to find work. A couple months into working at the startup, won them a few million dollars in contracts at the Department of Education. We had like $30,000 in revenue up till that point. So I got promoted to C-suite. Um, we helped raise a couple million dollars in venture funding. Uh, but the joke at the company always was that we were an ed tech company, but I was uneducated <laughs> because I hadn't gone to college. So I, I ended up leaving that company, not for bad reasons, actually, for good reasons, because um, I wanted to get my education. Went to the University of Chicago, studied economics. Um, while I was there, I founded another company, uh, sold that company, actually, ran the acquiring company. We raised at like $125 million valuation a year and a half after we started that second company. Had kind of like just this crazy life experience. Um, stepped away from that company sort of mid-pandemic, wanted to do something different. Um, spent about two months just like working out full-time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I was feeling a little bit burned out, 
they did the whole school and running two companies thing. And uh, was that the right idea? I don't know, but I did it. <laughs> um, so I was feeling a little burned out, left that. Um, and I was kind of asking around, I, I got Agitas, like I wanted to get back into it, but I didn't know what I really wanted to do. And I, I called up a friend of mine, Chris Deutsch, who was one of the nicest investors I interacted with in my time in Chicago. And he, um, I was like, you know, Chris, like, are you in your portfolio companies hiring? Are they looking for advisors? Like, I, I just don't really know what I want to do next. And he was like, well, you know, my wife is pregnant. We just had a big exit. I want to redeploy all the capital. Like, will you help me, you know, with Lofty Ventures? And so I joined Chris uh, Lofty Ventures like about two and a half, three years ago. Um, Lofty Ventures is, is uh, sorry, I was at the time that I joined was actually just Chris and I's capital, mostly Chris's capital. Um, we had at the time that I joined about 32 companies in the portfolio. Um, as of right now, so we did about 30 additional investments in the first calendar year that I was there, which is pretty crazy. Um, so we just redeployed a ton of capital. We do early stage investing largely in um, Midwestern based founders. 70% uh, of the portfolio is female or minority founded companies. Um, at the time that I was working there, uh, I'm still working with Chris. We, we did a, we, one of the big pushes that we did was actually, so we were investing first check, so seed, pre-seed, really early stage. And in the Midwest, there wasn't a lot of that kind of capital. Um, so our big goal of ours is to activate more angel investors. And so one thing that we did was we started a syndicate, so the Lofty Venture Syndicate, where we were focused on activating more early check stage writing people in Chicago. And so what we do is, um, initially when we started the syndicate, what we would do is for companies where we'd already invested, uh, in their subsequent round, we'd help them raise from, you know, a brand name VC, et cetera. Traditionally, we hadn't been doubling down on later rounds. It just wasn't our model. But what we started doing was via the syndicate, bringing uh, other investors in on rounds that were, you know, scarce. We had allocations. Um, for example, we were a first, the first check into the company that was the first soft bank investment in Chicago. Um, we just syndicated a deal that was co-investment with Andreessen. Like we have all the all those fancy names or whatever. But the big focus of that syndicate has been on education for aspiring angel investors. Um, and so we have over a hundred people that have written checks with us, um, sort of our, many of whom are writing their first checks. Recently, we've been also doing net new investments via that. Um, that's a big part of what Lofty's evolved into. But wh while I was doing all that with Lofty, um, so part of the story, which I, I didn't mention, which is kind of important, was throughout the time that I was doing startups and you know fencing and all those things, um, I used to buy and sell Magic the Gathering trading cards to fund Amazing. it all. Uh, I was a big, like, you know, just arbing, speculating, et cetera. Um, and I, so I was working in venture, have this trading card background. I saw NFTs start coming. It was actually some of our portfolio companies were like asking us like about Web3 stuff and this and that. I was like, you know what, let me look into this, whatever. I looked at NFTs. I was like, oh, this is kind of just like venture investing, but with trading cards. Like this makes a lot of sense to me. And um, was very fortunate to like get in pretty early on a lot of that stuff. So um, I got in pretty early on Board Apes. I bought into Board Apes at like five grand. Um, board Apes, Cool Cats, um, Artifacts, Pre-Qualified Items. Overall, my portfolio went about like 150X last year, sold 70% of it in December of uh, of, 20, nice. of of last year. And so um, had this pretty crazy run. And then it was like what was initially a small part of my portfolio became suddenly a very large part of my portfolio. And that's sort of where Spencer Ventures was born out of was, um, was like people kept asking me to... In, invest money for them, invest money for them. And I was like, look, like, I, I think that we are, the amount of risk, like last year when we had this crazy bull run was just, I didn't really want to be, want to be investing other people's money. Um, but now that things are down, I started Spencer Ventures about four months ago, it's sort of in the bear market. And so now I feel a lot more comfortable doing that. And that was when I decided to take outside capital to continue my trades. 
Got it. Okay. And so you, you currently are working both with Spencer Ventures and Lofty Ventures at the same time. Yeah. So, I mean, what we do at Lofty Ventures is a lot, like it's very synergistic. We're actually um, recently announced that we are doing uh, web three syndicate deals. So we're, we're, we're making some of our first uh, web three native investments through Lofty Ventures. And so one of the interesting things that I get to do is pick a lot of the times what I'm, when I look at companies, do I want to be an owner of their private equity? Do I want to be an owner of their mm. NFT? Like 90 or, or, or token, 99% of the time, I'd rather own the token or NFT. But then I think there's the, the thing that gets me most interested about like Web3 equity deals that we have access to. And we have access to like some of the best deals because of what we do. It's like, it's, it's all synergistic, right? And so, um, but there's a lot of infrastructure plays where like an infrastructure company may not launch a token, right? But they may do... Uh, private equity and seed pre-seed is a really good time to get into those web three deals because a lot of the times, like when you're, when you're venture investing versus like token investing, like if you, if I buy an NFT, I can sell that NFT tomorrow. If I venture invest in a company like that money, there's like three ways that I get, there's two ways I get my money back. One, that company goes public or I guess three ways with web three. One, that company goes public. That's like the best return. Very rare. Two, especially in Web3. Like, there's not been many Web3 companies that have gone public. It's basically Coinbase. Right? Yeah. Then, like, the company can get acquired. That, for most of these companies, is a lot of times the bull case. If you saw, like, Gem and Genie got acquired for, like, hundreds of millions by, like, other Web3 companies. Um, and then the third option is they do, like, like uh, you, you take a token warrant when you do the investment, and then they do a token. And that's, like, also a good liquidity outcome. And I actually think that that's a hedge that Web3 companies have against Web2 companies. It's, like, in Web two venture totally. investments, if they can't get acquired and they can't go public, it just, you're just it goes to zero. Like your money's worthless. Even if, it, even if they're like still operating as a company, like there's all these like zombie companies they call them, where they just like aren't quite big enough to go public. No one really wants to buy them, yeah. and like they're 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 making money, but like their investors are never gonna get their money back. And so like in that scenario in Web three, you could just like launch a token and and give investors liquidity. And so um, there's that. But yeah, that's. Sorry, I went on like this whole tangent, but uh, that uh, that's been an interesting component of like how are these synergistic, but also like how do I get to see the trade offs of like where do I want to own the equity, where do I want to own the token? Yeah, and I guess also I'm curious to know like because Lofty, I mean, now it seems like Web three is probably like a bigger part of what Lofty does, but at the beginning it sounds like it was you're investing just across all different types of industries and categories without any sort of specification, but like maybe considering how long you've spent at Lofty and now like Spencer Ventures. I'm always interested to hear like how people's opinions or theses have changed perhaps, or like new things that maybe are even like contrarian, I guess. Like when, when you think about like maybe to ask both those questions and like, what are some of the biggest, I guess, lessons or surprises that you didn't know, let's say a year or two ago, both like sort of like co-investing realm of both Lofty and Spencer Ventures. And then two, maybe what's the opinion that you you have that you feel that maybe other people don't? Because another thing I'm also noticing is that Clearly, like, again, particularly on the Spencer Venture side of things, there's not like hundreds of other people who are doing this. It is a fairly small group. So I'd imagine just by create, semi-creating that group, you're kind of already being contrarian. So I'm curious to know, like, what are some takes that you have that people might not agree with? And also just other things you've learned or that's been surprising the last years. Well, I don't know if this is surprising. I think one of the biggest, like, driving so DCs things that is true in Lofty Ventures is true in Spencer Ventures. And, and it's just like every... the. I am constantly proven that this is more and more true is that um, like it just invest founder focused for founder first, right? Like great founders will find a way to make something happen. Even if the idea they're starting off with isn't like the strongest ever. Whereas bad founders, even if they have like 
the best concept will find a way to screw everything up because at the end of the day, whether it's a web two company, a web three company, it's still a company and you need people involved. Right. And people want to be like people like create environments that are like conducive to themselves. Right. And so if you have like the absolute best people involved in a project, they're going to hire the absolute best people and continuing to iterate and they're going to have the right framework. If you have like someone who's like too cocky, too much of an asshole, like doesn't get along, play well with others. Like, like they're just the training, like the, the wheels will fall off at some point. And so I think like, there's a lot of people in the NFT space, for example, will invest on hype, invest on just momentum or technicals or whatever. And, and fine. Like if you want to, like people make tons of money doing that. Like I'm not saying that's a bad strategy, but for me, it's like the high, the best art is just like, who are the best people get to know people over time? Like, how do you work with them? How do you see them move throughout the space? Is this someone who I've seen operate in one way, seen operate another way? Like what, what is it? And like, what are the vibes? Like, I, there's just no other way to say it, but like, it's true in web two venture. It's true in web three venture because like, at the end of the day, like most of being a CEO, and this is also from my own experience, is like it's it's generally mostly a sales position, right? You're sale, selling to investors, you're selling to employees, and you're selling to customers, right? Every company does all three of those things. If you look at like Web3, like so many founders are on Twitter spaces, have a big Twitter presence, and their Twitter presence drives a lot of the project, right? If they can't sell to employees, to investors, to um, and to customers, then like, the, the, the company it doesn't matter what they're doing. No, like buy-in is so important. Like, I've seen some really incredible projects just totally fall flat on their face because they can't get buy-in from one or of those three. And usually, it's not like you can't get buy-in from one of those three, and the other two are fine. Usually, it's like the same skill set gets all three bought in. And so, you know, people who have good energy bring other great people around them, but also people who are like good at sales. Like it's it's and it, it's it's a subtle, complicated art. I I think that. I don't know if that's contrarian or, or maybe like a common theme right now, because in general, I feel the same way, like the older I get, right. It's like when I was younger in my startup tech scene, I, I always thought that product and obviously product engineering are obviously super important. It's not like have a shit product, but the older I get, the more I, I think that soft skills, EQ sales is that and marketing branding positioning is actually what matters more, or at least like relative to what I thought like years ago. It's interesting to see like you sounds like you've gone through a similar sort of like journey perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'll, I'll think of something a little bit more contrarian. The spicier take here is, is this, is, is as that, spicy as you want. <laughs> I think that like people in the crypto space pay not enough attention to macroeconomics and too much attention to individual product projects. And so like everything that you're doing right now is just a bet on when the fed will say that they're raising that they're start they're stopping to increase interest rates and they're starting to lower interest rates. Like that's the only bet that anyone's making. Now, there's different types of exposure to that decision. So you can make like like I think within like NFTs for example, right? Like you you have a choice, a really active choice if you're managing capital. Am I trying to get exposure to the NFT market in general or within the so like if the NFT market grows, I do well, if it shrinks, I do poorly, right? And that itself is a levered play basically on like ETH volatility. So like, you know, if you look at the price of ETH is highly correlated to the price of the underlying NFTs, but they tend to move more. So like when ETH crashes, uh, NFTs crash in ETH prices, you get this like double crazy crash, right? If it goes up, the assumption would be does both, but we haven't really seen that environment again, right? So we've got like that exposure, but or are you trying to make money within the NFT space? So you're trying to buy into a project that grows the percentage ownership of the overall NFT space. And like, those are really fundamentally different bets. 
And I think that like it is even the ones that grow as a percentage of the NFT space, like your time horizon has to be much shorter. And it's probably the right strategy is to you're doing that rotate profits from those trades into things that are more established. So like, you know, because at the end of the day too, those hype cycles of newer projects tend to be highly correlated with these macro cycles. So like when, for example, we just had a, a Fed meeting that people didn't receive very well, right? Um, a lot of projects that were ripping, absolutely, like the new projects that were hot on the block, like saw a pullback because they were ripping until macro came in and people started suddenly selling. And every, like, you can't avoid macro expo exposure, right? You could hedge it potentially, but like truly like you're just at the whims of macro. And so the real bet that people are making is like, I think a lot of people think they're betting on individual products or companies when like in web three right now, based on how small the entire space is based on like, is, like you're, you're really making a bet on like all of these outside influences and how they're going to impact macroeconomics, institutional adoption, like those things, those are the things that truly matter if you want to make like big, big amounts of money. I, I was going to save some questions for later that are like kind of like macro, but I, I feel like it's probably the right time to ask them. Like, okay, so let's say right now we're in a, I guess, arguably bear market when it comes to NFTs in terms of like trading volume being down, the overall probably floor price, average price for most NFT projects has gone down versus like this time last year. And if I was, and clearly, you know, I'm not a skeptic, I'm, that's why I'm here. But if I was someone coming to you saying, yo, Spencer, it like all this hype around NFTs, like everything's going down right now. Why are you still believing in this? Like what, what's the bull case here moving forward? If I, if I'm someone that doesn't see like the sort of, big picture cycle in terms of the growth prospects? Like how would you like kind of respond to someone like that? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, it's, it's this concept I said a little bit earlier. If like, are we, we were in a bubble, people said we're in a bubble, bubble popped. Like, are we in a cycle or are we like a cyclical thing? Or it was, was it just a one-time thing, this one-time bubble? I think that there's a pretty reasonable chance. And I don't, I'm not saying this is a hundred percent chance, but I think that there's probably a more than 50% chance I would put it on. So we're down 90%, right? If you think that there's a 50% chance that we come back, then that's a great trade, right? That's an ARB of like 40%, right? And so yeah. all you need to think is that there's a 10% chance that NFTs come back for them to be like a reasonable play right now. And I think that it's pretty reasonable to think that there's a more than 10% chance. Now, what drives that coming backness is I think that like, I always have this view that people just like to trade stuff, right? And everything to, to some degree, like, uh, you know, everything, kind of has a base, kind of doesn't, right? So we see like, for example, um, you know, US dollar isn't backed by anything. It's got this Fed, they print more, they print less, right? But we accept that US dollar has value. Then you have something like Amazon stock. Amazon stock doesn't pay dividends, right? But we accept that it has value and the value is somehow correlated to its underlying assets, right? ETH and Bitcoin, what are their fundamentals? Well, we accept that they have value and you trust that someone else will, will buy them later, right? So like, I think a lot of people look at NFTs as something that's kind of absurd, but I agree. But I just think every asset class is absurd if you look at it. And so the question is like, how does NFTs become an asset class like say Ethan Bitcoin, like say Amazon stock, like say US dollar, that people like just have a stronger belief in and are willing to trade, right? And again, I'm coming to the premise that people just like to trade stuff in general and NFTs are a pretty good thing to trade. Um, and so I think that one of the views that I have of this, if you look at some of the, the, the most successful trades of last year. One of the, one of them was buying into Yuga ecosystem, Bored Apes, Mutant Apes. And then you got airdropped like this token, right? ApeCoin. And so what happened there? What happened was you had this restricted pool of people who are trading NFTs. You airdrop a cryptocurrency that goes on all the major exchanges day one. 
And suddenly you have all this liquidity that can trade it that couldn't trade NFT. So there's all of these funds, tons, millions and millions and millions and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, right? In funds that trade on custodial exchanges. So they trade on Coinbase, they trade on whatever. And in their LPA, it says you can only trade coins on these exchanges. And so if you wanted exposure to NFTs, the only way to get that was to buy ApeCoin. And what happens when you airdrop a coin that gives you access to another liquidity pool, right? You get this great return. And this is, this is, this is not a new model. This is exactly how venture capital works, right? In venture capital, you have private equity. There's a small pool of people that invest in private equity, right? And then you take it to a certain size and you put it on the public markets, right? Private equity to public markets is the same to me as NFTs to coin markets, right? And so the ARB in the, in, is that there's more people trading. You've got a lot more retail, right? And then you also have funds that trade public equities, right? And so there's more people trading. There's more liquidity in public equities. Than there are in private capital. So that's been the traditional ARB of VC to public markets. I think that the NFT space, one of the theses on the NFT space I think is most compelling is that the NFT space is the private market for like the public market being coins, especially because you can't really ICO anymore, right? The way to do an ICO these days is to do an NFT product and airdrop a token. And so when you look at it that way, it makes a lot of sense of like, if coins are the like public markets of the crypto space, then like NFTs is the private markets make a lot of sense, right? And so if, if you take it that way, then the emergence of more capital going towards people always want to find the earlier stage, earlier stage, earlier stage, right? Like the savvy institutional investors that want digital asset exposure, I think in the next bull run, it makes sense for them to go into NFTs because they want to be earlier in this value chain. That's kind of like one of my big macro takes on like what's going to happen. I could be totally wrong here, but again, I think that there only needs to be a 10% chance this is right for this to be an EV, sorry, an 11% chance or 10.001, right? For this to be an EV positive play. If you think, again, we're down 90%. And so it needs to be a 10% chance we go to all time highs for this to be like a reasonable bet to make. I'm not saying this is definitely gonna happen, but I think that there's a fairly reasonable chance that it does. And if there is that chance, then like, I think it's worth taking. But also like, I'm a risk loving person. This was a big thing for me too yeah. about when I was raising my fund was it, every LP that I took on, I asked like, are, are you okay with this going to zero? Like, yeah. like I think there's, like, there's a 90% chance of this going to zero. Are you okay with that? And anyone who yeah. said anything other than yes, I didn't let invest because the truth of the matter is like, this is highly risky. Yeah. Like this could all go to zero. There's a pretty high likely chance that this all goes to zero, right? Yeah. Regulation could come in that is bad for the space and, yeah. and it just could be over tomorrow. Right. Um, yeah. but like, I think the, like, if you are someone who's forward looking and you want, you know, a small percent of your portfolio, it shouldn't be 50%. It shouldn't be even 20%. Like one to 5% in digital assets makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Within that digital asset ecosystem. I think you, if you believe in digital assets, then believing in, then having a bet on NFTs is like a reasonable allocation within your digital asset allocation. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. Then and clearly you're like on the, the frontier of, of investing here, you know, like high risk, high reward. Uh, I wanted to uh, clarify something here. So, the the concept that NFTs are private markets and coin markets being like an equivalent of public markets, like ApeCoin being an example. Uh, do you see a world where like, because I think, isn't that more localized to specifically PFP projects? Like a world where there's a Clonex coin, like a CryptoPunks coin, like Deadfellas coin. Uh, is that what you meant by that in terms of like most anti-projects potentially at some point in the future, like turning into creating their own like sort of coin? I think that that's one take on the NFT space. I think that that's one of the more compelling arguments because like, again, like you just have to look at like, like ignore, like just look at last cycle. What were the biggest wins 
which is like eighth coin. Eighth coin was one of the craziest moments of everything. They airdropped a token with a seven yeah. billion dollar market cap on the first day. Yeah. It didn't dilute the price of the existing collection. Like yeah. that's mind boggling, right? Yeah. The underlying NFTs like they just created out of thin air seven billion dollars, right? Yeah. And so like. Do I think that that's the only bull case for NFTs? No, right? Like, again, I think one of the other cases is you could say, you could look at it and say, okay, actually IP growth and IP licensing is the play here, right? You could look at something like, um, you know, what is, you know, who's who's like the second richest man in the world, right? Bernard Arnold, uh, maybe yeah. even first at this point. I, I yeah. fluctuates, but like, what does he own? LVMH. LVMH is like a luxury fashion brand. It's Louis Vuitton, Noé, Hennessy, right? And What's been interesting to me in the venture world is we don't have a good way of venture backing like brand equity in the same way that we do venture backing like SaaS revenue, right? So SaaS revenue is the biggest thing that people venture back in venture. But NFTs, like you could look at also another take is that NFTs are a way to venture back brand equity. And so that's why I look at something like Pudgy Penguins. Ooh, yeah. They're cute, they're licensable, right? Like, like there's this growth of like, I, if Pudgy Penguins has a Netflix show, if they do all these things, like look at something like Angry Birds, right? Like Angry Birds yeah. is a movie, it has the, the toys, it has all these things, right? But like, there wasn't a good way to venture back the IP of Angry Birds. Like, you could venture back the company, but like, this is an interesting way where like owners and participants in the culture can venture back the culture itself. Like, that's a completely different take, and that that by the way has nothing to do with the coin markets, right? That's just like growing the IP, growing the opportunities there. Um, and so, you know, that could be what NFTs end up being, and that could be way more important than coin airdrops. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I have you seen that new um, when you talk about venture backing IP? That's something I think particularly interesting because I mean you've seen experiments like like Stoner Cats that Mila Kunis, Ashton Kutcher won last year. Um, Mad Realities, I think, is another example of one. But have you seen that Tim Ferriss one that just came out? Uh, I, like a titled Cock Punch. It's like Tim Ferriss is creating a whole new yeah. It's like he's creating like a whole new IP universe, starting off with like uh, NFTs represent like different characters with different clans, trying to get like a Game of Thrones kind of vibe. Yeah, I've seen that yeah. project. I, I'm not the hottest on that project, I, but um, like I, I think, I think a lot of people mistake what IP really is. Yeah, and like IP is a really difficult and fickle thing. It starts often from story. It starts often from participation. But like, how do you get the ubiquity? Like, like look at if you look at like, you know, even the greatest like Disney movies and stuff. Like, most of the revenue Disney makes isn't off the movie; it's off the toys and, and those kind of things. So like. You can make great IP that isn't pro like, 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 I don't know. IP is just very complicated. Um, I also, with that project specifically, I wasn't in love with the fact that Tim uh, just donated all of the proceeds from it to a nonprofit that he runs. Yeah. I just, yeah. Like, if, you, if you're going to build a project and you, that you really are committed to building over a long period of time, why would you not take the revenue from the project to build the project? Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't seem sincere to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, like, are there specific projects that you're most bullish on, you know, without needing to, like, aggressively shill anything? Like, it's it's funny you mentioned Pudgy Penguins because I actually recorded another podcast this morning with um, the folks from NFTX, um, and we were actually talking about Pudgy Penguins, like, they're super mm -hmm. bullish on that. But we also just, I, I asked them, like, what are some of the projects you're excited about? Because I'm thinking as well, like, beyond PFPs as well, other areas we haven't gotten super deep into yet, but, like, let's say digital collectibles from a sporting perspective, you know, like digital trading cards, stuff like NBA top shot as well. So rare, all the game NFT um, concepts. We talked briefly about sort of like access token stuff, but uh, I guess 
taking a step back, like are there certain NFT use cases or projects that you haven't discussed already that you're particularly passionate about? Well, I think it comes also from like my view on this space, which is, which is like, again, you can have a million and one different theses within the space that make sense. And like, you're making bets around them. The reason that I think PFPs drive a lot of the space is because they're the easiest to do comps on, right? Like you can look at, okay, there's like existing yeah. right now, there's different tiers and there's not, like, let's be honest here. There's just not that many relevant projects, right? You've got like board apes and punks, which are both Yuga Labs assets are like at the 60, you know, somewhere 50 to 70 ETH tier, right? Then it goes really far down. There's like this big jump down. You've got like Clonex at like a market cap. So there's 20,000 Clonex versus 10,000. So I put Clonex at like a 12 ETH equivalent, like they're at the like six ETH, right? But Clonex, Clonex and Azuki in that like 12 ETH strata, right? And then below that, you've got, um, you know, Moonbirds holding like something like seven ETH. You've got um, a couple other projects down uh, down there. You've got, and then you've got like Pudgies at like four ETH. So you've got, sorry, Moonbirds, you've got, um, I think there's probably a couple other big ones that I'm missing uh, in the 70s, but either here or there. For ETH, you've got Pudgies, right? Like one of the things, the reasons that it's easy to be bullish on Pudgies right now is that like, it's obvious where they could go, right? Like there's, why is Azuki worth like 4X, 3X a Clonex, uh, sorry, a, a Pudgy? Like there's not an obvious answer to that other than just like, I think that the market hasn't repriced as much recently. And we've just seen like this, this, this strata and this like ranking amongst the top projects really hasn't changed that much since the bull market. Like words have gone down a little bit within it because they made the big CC0 announcement. Like other than that, like it's really not reorganized and that seems wrong. Like it just seems like it's not efficient market repricings. And so like where I'm looking, when I'm looking at PFP projects, I'm like, okay, there is this like tier list that you can move up within. There's all of these like things that I can benchmark against. And so I think like a lot of the smart build in the space identify that like people like to trade things that are familiar to them. And so creating something that is in the same language of other things that they're used to is really interesting. Now within all those projects, like complete, like, like Azuki is a luxury brand, like Ford Apes is building a metaverse. Like, like these are all totally different projects. Clonex is like a clothing brand. Like they're doing the sneaker thing, right? Um, you've got Pudgy is an IP play. Like, like these are just completely different companies. If you actually look at what they're doing, when it comes to some of the other stuff, like, music NFTs, like gaming NFTs. Uh, my challenge with like gaming centric NFTs is a couple of things. One is, unfortunately, I think the best game, video game NFTs haven't released the video game yet. Like I've seen very few examples where mass adoption really drives, like um, really drives value towards the original NFT holders. Like we saw Axie Infinity do really well in the last cycle, but like it's tough to build a game if you do build a game, like, again, I, I'm a big collector of Magic Gathering trading cards. And I think Magic Gathering trading cards is, like, a great example of, like, a really good game. There's tons of people who still play it. Like, millions of people play Magic Gathering. Um, and it also has this, like, really great price history where, like... But even then, like, the grail of Magic Gathering is the Alpha Black Lotus. There's probably about 1,000 copies. Maybe 500 to 600 still exist. That's $100,000, right? In the bull run, like, the cheapest board ape was $500,000. Like, there's no way, like there's there's just this upper bound of what I think a collectible, like I think no NFT collectible should be worth more than a Black Lotus, an Alpha Black Lotus based on just collectability, right? Because there's no way it's actually more playable, collectible, all these things than an Alpha Black Lotus. And so like, if you look at it from that perspective, I just think that like, you know, and again, I just don't like this, that like the most bullish thing about an NFT that's part of a game is the game hasn't been released yet. We've just not seen examples of this doing well maybe other side does it, but I don't think the other side needs to do well, right? Like if you just looked like 
other side to me is that people really like, again, investing in things they're familiar with. And that's why we saw this crazy, like last cycle, like there's like a hundred thousand plots of sandbox land. Those pumped to like two ETH at $4,000 ETH, right? Why did sandbox land, why did Decentraland do well? Those games are unplayable. Like they, Decentraland doesn't load and sandbox like is the laggiest thing ever. Like nobody plays these games, right? But why was it doing so well? Because people who are real estate investors who are used to saying, okay, like I know how real estate works. I buy a real estate piece, you know, it appreciates over time. Like I get this. It's easy to pitch them on, okay, here's real estate, but in the metaverse, like that makes a lot of sense. And so they're overvalued. So for me, all the other side needs to be is better than Decentraland and better than Sandbox, which is this incredibly low bar. And you don't actually need the game to do that well for going into the next cycle. The pitch of, again, and I think this will always be a compelling pitch. So long as there are people who own real estate is like digital real estate is just an easy thing to wrap one's head around. And it seems very familiar, right? And so for that reason, I don't think other side needs to have a good game to do well, but like, like this just shows you the absurdity of investing in a lot of this stuff is like, I don't know, right? Like, I think if you want to do like truly like the video game play is, is Digi Daigaku's probably. So that's Gabe Layden. Like yeah. that guy, I mean, he's totally nuts, but like, but like he, you know, free to play, like most phone gaming is this free to play. Like I, it's not AAA games. Um, will that be profitable to the owners of the NFTs? I don't know. Um, but if you believe in the gaming pieces, like he's the only one who I think who really has a track record of building games in the space right now that like, I think will churn out enough decent games to do something, but we'll have to see. No, there's so, and this is what I love too, because like clearly, obviously you and I obviously expected this have such a nuanced understanding of NFTs. And it's interesting because like clearly the audience of who listen to this aren't people that just have like a cursory understanding of NFTs because, uh, Sometimes like like the other day I was at a bar and someone was talking to me like aggressively about how he thinks NFTs are BS using like art as an example. Like you're telling me I'll just like create like a Picasso and a digital version, but there's so much nuance to what NFT means, right? And I think the the headline that people see if they just have read like the New York Times might be precisely because of probably the Beeple sale is that it's, oh, digital art, that's what NFT is, right? But there's just so many more layers to that. So it's like, I just love the the nuance in what you're describing at each different like mini subsector of NFTs. Now, I'd love to dive into, because as you know, New Street, we care a lot about NFTs, but also other things like trading cards. Oh, please feel free to comment. Yeah. Before we before we go, because that, that's going to be a rabbit hole listening to. But before, okay, okay, I, wanna, okay. I agree with what you just said, but I think this is like the funniest thing to me is two things. If people always tell us to me, they're like, oh, like NFTs, like bullshit, whatever, right? I'm like, okay, sure. Right? Because I get it. And I, I think it's reasonable. Like, as I said, people like doing things that, that seem obvious. Like NFTs are an easy thing to dunk on because on the surface totally. level, they, it's easy to present like, like animal pictures on the internet for tens of thousands of dollars. It's dumb. Like that sounds conceptually like ridiculous and it's, it's easy to dunk on, right? There's two things. One is, okay, let's first establish that like every asset class is dumb because like Amazon stock, you don't even get the picture, right? Like, Thank you. like you get Thank literally you. nothing. Amazon stock is a shitty governance token, right? You sometimes get to vote on things, but people just trade it based on this underlying company, right? So doesn't pay dividends. It's just like, it's just, it just exists, right? So we've got Amazon stock. We've accepted that like, okay, things exist like this already, right? Secondly, like if, again, if I had a, a key card that gets me into, you know, uh, uh, Equinox, right? I wouldn't be like, oh, like, haha, like you paid like, you know, however much, 300 bucks a month for a piece of plastic, like yeah, dunk, right? That, that's not what I would do because that's the, like, and so if you think of NFTs as just the like image, yeah, they're easy to make fun of. It doesn't make any sense. But like, that's not really what's going on here. It's like, 
the image is a digital access token to other things. No, so I continue. I feel very passionately about like this specific conversation. Dude, I, I love it. And, and, and I like, I, I've never heard that Equinox analogy. I will use that in the future too. I think that's a, that's a good one. Um, okay. Now I know you, we could probably talk for five more hours, but I'm mindful of time here, but I want to dive into a topic that I know is close to your heart. So taking a step back here, let's say I am someone who has a very cursory, very br- like basic understanding of what Magic the Gathering is. Could you please maybe just like high level explain what it is and then also your journey into Magic because it seems like it's, I would presume it's a mixture of your own personal passions. I, I don't know how you actually got into Magic and then how it has evolved into, you know, like a, a business, a side hustle kind of thing. And what's the state of Magic today? Because like what you mentioned about the growing IP in the franchise, like what role does Magic play in the world today? How do you see it evolving? And is there an NFT angle to it too? So maybe that that sort of, structure yeah so like magic the gathering is a game is created by richard garfield and i think like 93 um and it's like the primordial trading card game like basically all other trading card games are based on magic the gathering it's also like the best and most playable one so magic the gathering like at the end of the day it tends to be pretty similar to poker and just like it's a lot of math and like memorizing decks there's like over ten thousand cards printed in all time at this point, it's a pretty complicated game, but it's not the hardest to like pick up. Um, but it's just a really, really good game, and it's a game that's been around for quite a while. There's a lot of different stratas within Magic, and one of the things is like, um, you know, there's sort of like, there's obviously the oldest cards are tend to be more expensive. There was one point where they had something called the Reserve List, which they said they will never reprint certain cards. Um, We'll get to that in a second. The, the magic grew over the years. There was a big competitive scene. It's a big digitally competitive scene. It's changed a lot in the pandemic. There's a huge casual scene now. So there's a format of magic. So there's many different formats. There's standard, modern, pioneer, vintage, legacy. These are just describe which different card pools you can draw from. So with 10,000 cards, right? You can imagine that there's like people, some of the cards are very expensive. Like certain formats are hard to access. So the cards that have the fewer restricted, the formats that have fewer restricted cards are very expensive to build decks in. But then they have formats that are like only the last two years, let's say. You can use cards that have been printed in that unit of time, and those tend to be cheaper to play and more accessible. But they've also had casual formats that are not meant to be competitive. One of the things that's interesting about Magic, it's gone through this arc of like, you know, there was a pro tour. Like they used to fly out, you know, there used to be a lot of people who professionally played Magic the Gathering. They would fly them out. They would have million dollar prize purses at tournaments, world championships, et cetera. Um, recently, there's been a lot more online plays. They have actually two different online games. There's Magic the Gathering Online and Magic the Gathering Arena. Online has all the cards, but it's a lot more clunky. Arena is a more recent game, but it's much smoother. It's like, you know, you think about it. Fun fact too, actually, um, if in crypto people would know this, Mount Gox, MTGOX, was actually originally Magic the Gathering Online trading platform that they then ported over to trade crypto with. So like the thing about Magic the Gathering Online is Magic the Gathering Online has basically had like poor man's NFTs for years, right? I think it came out in like 2010, maybe even sooner than that. Uh, but Magic Gathering Online, like you have a digital collection where you buy and sell cards. The cards have secondary market prices in like tickets, which you can sell and buy for US dollars. So like, like there's this robust secondary market for Magic Gathering Online assets that has just always existed. And like, you will never make a better game than Magic Gathering as an NFT project, right? So like people who haven't like been study- students of Magic Gathering are just like doing it wrong. Like this is like a very important thing to understand digital collectibles, to understand collectibles of all sort. Like this is just like happened. It's gone through pumps and, you know, sell-offs like that. 
like take a look at the magic market if you haven't. Um, one thing that's been really interesting too is like as this uh, because this game is actually pretty mathy to play and like pretty nerdy, right? So a lot of the thing that happens in, in culture, right, is like nerds in high school and middle school get bullied and they go off and they make all the money, right? And so um, there's a lot of people who went like Magic Gathering to poker to finance route. And so there's even a couple like a uh, Susquehanna Investment Group was like a really big quant trading firm. And like half of the old pro circuit for Magic Gathering like works at Susquehanna Investment. Wow, I didn't know that. And like, like, there's a lot of very, very, very successful finance people that played this game. And that's one of the reasons that the expensive and collectible cards are so valuable is like the market for people buying and selling these cards is a lot of like people who had some amount of nostalgia from when they were younger or played on the pro circuit. Cause there was this huge pro circuit for years and years, right? Like there used to be 3000, 5,000 people tournaments like all the time, like once a month. And so like, there's, you know, this nostalgia, this pro circuit. And so those people collect the cards. And what's interesting too, is there's like different social groups of like playing, right? So in New York, for example, there's a pretty big vintage scene. Vintage is like the oldest, rarest cards. Your decks probably run you like 60 cards. You've 75 cards total in a deck, 60 main, 15 sideboard. A, a vintage deck probably runs somewhere from 40 to 80 grand to have because you need power, you need bizarre bag. Like, like, like these are not like there are individual cards in your vintage yeah. deck that will be $10,000 is the cheapest wow. printing of that card. That's where you can play your Black Lotuses, right? Now, what does that end up being? The people who play that is a community of people who can afford that, right? And so it's actually this like really interesting to like be a participant in community of people who play this game. And like, yeah, you're most of them play it at this point a little bit for the game itself, but mostly to, as like a way to see their friends that they've known forever in this space and like make new friends. But it's like it's this interesting way to gate this community, right? It's like your buy-in to that community is like buying, you know, the power nine a total costs 40 grand, right? So you want to play, you need the power nine. Those are the nine most powerful cards. It's Black Lotus, the Moxin, Ancestral Recall, Time Walk, Time Twister. Like most decks have all of those in that format and you got to play in, right? And so it's just this interesting community of like nerds that get together to play this game. Um, but there's like within that, now here's what I think is like a, one of the things that's very important. Is so like the cards have different versions, right? So you have your cheapest version is like, let's say your unlimited Black Lotus costs 10,000. Right? The most expensive version is your Alpha Black Lotus. Alpha was the first set. There's only a thousand of them. And those are like a hundred thousand dollars, right? Now I I I'm known in the magic community because I and these are decks play foiled out decks. So they often have like Amazing. a premium foil printing. So like this force of will, right? Force of will costs about call it eighty to hundred bucks. This is the judge promo foil force of will. These cost like five hundred dollars a piece, right? Why? Because when you go and like sit down in those communities, like who do you want to be in the community? Do you want to be the big baller in the community? Or do you want to be like the person playing? Now it's fine. Like there's no one looks down on you for either way. Right. But like, I think one thing that people don't get about, like one thing that I do in NFTs a lot is I buy mid tier rares or high tier rares. Right. And people are like, why do you do that? Well, one of the reasons is like within, from what I've learned in Magic the Gathering is like the demand for rare stuff is driven by the demand for not rare stuff. Right. So I only care about having my shiny force of will because I know someone else will have the not shiny one. Right. And that's like a oh, way okay. that you can establish like pecking order within something. And so within the board ape collection, like why do we, with my fund, own the laser eye board ape? Because within the pecking order of board apes, like that's higher. Right. So, but the demand for the laser eye is clearly driven by the demand for the base NFT. And so in a market where things I think are oversold, the multiple on what is on rares above cheapness or floor, as you say, in NFT land or like 
you know, base version in, in, in Magic the Gathering, like the multiple compresses, right? Because there's no demand for the underlying assets. So like, like think about it this way, right? Like in the bull run, it was cool to be a board ape because that was like, I've just, I've made the best investment of the last 50 years, right? Is this crazy asset that's like 500 to 1000 X in, in a couple months, right? I'm cool. Right now, a board ape, only a board ape is saying, hey, I held this asset that's down 90%, right? It's not as cool. I think it will, again, in the future, be cool to have a board ape PFP. To have, to have this, right? And I'm making a bet that there will, at a future date, be demand for these, like, like essentially there will be demand for, like, the high-end stuff because the demand for the low-end stuff will exist. You don't want to be the king of the people who lost 90%. Like, that's not, that's not, like, a cool status symbol. You want to be the cool, the king of the person who's up whatever percent, right? And so I'm making a bet that that will come back. Maybe it doesn't, and I'm just the king of fools, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay being the king of fools, but... I'm a king of something. <laughs> and if I understand correctly, right? So like you um been buying and selling magic cards for, for years. You've been playing in tournaments. It magic was what kind of got you to first notice NFTs perhaps and appreciate it in a way more more quickly than most other people did. Um so it seems like magic has also just had like a big impact on your life, like professionally and personally as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean like for me, it was a lot of different things. Like I think, you know, and this is something I think about too, is like in the roughest times of my life, like magic has always been there. Cause I always know I could go to like a magic tournament, sit down and like play a game. And you're like, it's a community. And like, you know, I, I, I lived in Chicago for a while. I moved back to New York and there were people who I hadn't seen in like six years, right? Seven years. So I came back in New York. I'm like, Hey, and we just picked right back up. Cause like we got to, there was something to chat about. There's mutual things. Like, like there's that community element, right? Then well, Magic taught me, like, you know, when I was in, like, high school, like, I was making 10 grand a year buying and selling Magic the Iron trading cards, right? Like, like that Amazing. was a lot of money to me at that time. And so, like, and so, like, but I was grinding, I was hustling, you know, I was buying eBay listings, I was going trading cards in person. I think the trading element has really changed. So I, I don't know that I could still do those strategies today. But, like, the, I, I watched that the Magic market mature. So, like, the Magic market, you know, there used to be, like, some online marketplaces, but in person, there wasn't really like, you couldn't look up prices on your phone. So you should go there and just, you'd have to kind of have all the prices memorized and trade with people and like ARB that people didn't know the prices, right? Then there started being these online um, marketplaces that would pop up and they became more prevalent. And then trading became less the thing to do. And it was like buying and speculating because everyone was speculating. So like, if you could buy and if things would pump, you'd have a lot of exit liquidity on your like cards essentially, right? And then it became like, you know, there was also these Facebook groups that popped up to have an OTC trades. Cause if you trade on eBay, mm. if you trade on tcgplayer.com, you're losing 20%, right? And we're kind of going through these same maturity cycles now, I think in NFTs where like in the beginning, it was like open sea was the only thing you just kind of had yeah. to hope someone would buy it or sell it or like see your bid or whatever it was. And now we're seeing something like blur come in that has bids and offers that with no royalties. And, you know, I don't think this is a royalty conversation today, but like, it's just seeing these mechanics develop and like, things that were OTC becoming less OTC, like it, it's similar and it's interesting to see. And I think one of the big things I learned from magic was like the fundamental thing you did in playing the game and trading and all those things changed very quickly. Yeah. I think it's yeah. the same here for NFTs. It's like, you know, you asked one of the things that like wizards has done recently is they've been reprinting a lot of cards. They've been reprinting yeah. foil versions of a lot of cards. Right. And you know, that's destroyed value for a lot of cards. Now you look at, okay, do I want the foil version? Well, I'm only collecting the original printing of the foil version or the judge foils. Cause that's what I think will hold. Cause there were like, like 
as you print more and more, one thing I learned in Magic that I think is transferable to NFTs is there are certain things that you can't dilute. You can't dilute the original. It will always be the most original. And you can't dilute, like, I mean, you can, but it's very rare that someone dilutes the rarest, right? So, like, the rarest, when you print more, will always be the rarest, right? And printing more benefits the rarest in its rarestness. The value of the rarest thing in a collection isn't a multiple on floor. It's a multiple on demand, essentially. And that's, like, I think a lot of people miss that. That is amazing. I love the analogies between magic and NFTs. And like, as also as, as I was going to ask you about the overprinting, but I guess you kind of answered it because uh, I, I don't know, like if you're bullish on, well, I mean, any franchise, whether we're talking about Pokemon or magic is never immune to poor decision-making, I guess, from like Wizards of the Coast in this case, or Hasbro. I know they were like called out on like recent, like investor calls about overprinting and stuff, but I, I don't know, like I'm about the future. Actually, maybe before, because we're running out of time here, before we uh, have asked you the wrap up questions. Maybe I could just ask you that. Like, what's your take on? Because I, I read some articles about the overprinting stuff, and as you think about Magic, which you know is owned by Hasbro at this point, do you see like the decision making or the overall health of the franchise as overall strong? Do you see like tailwinds, headwinds? Yeah. So I think it's really interesting, right? Like one thing that so. One thing that Wizards has been doing is they've moved really far away from the competitive scene to serve the casual scene. They're printing foils that like warp a lot. Like they're they're printing all these like different versions of like, like it used to be that there was like one foil printing of you know these old cards and like that was rare. Now there's like a hundred, right? I think what you've seen is like the the most loud voices of the people upset are the big collectors, the big competitive scene, the players. And really what that is is the realization that like the, the competitive scene, the people who devoted their lives to magic aren't the revenue drivers for Wizards of the Coast. And that's just like the, the sad fact of the matter is Hasbro is no longer optimizing for the loud demographic. They're optimizing for the profitable demographic, right? And it just, it kind of is what it is. But one thing that I've seen within the community that's really interesting is an active separation from decisions by Wizard, right? One of the most popular formats right now is a format called Pre-Modern. And one of the interesting things is that all the formats for the game, so there's like Legacy, Venture, all of the, the ones that are officially sanctioned are like, so from now to X number of years back. So they all include the new cards. Why they all include And so they keep printing more and more powerful cards to people think to incentivize you to buy the cards because you need them for the old, even in the older formats, right? Because there's this thing called power creep. The biggest format right now that people in my circles are playing is called pre-modern. And pre-modern is actually the opposite. So pre-modern is there's this set window time. So it's, so if there's two different frames on Mads Gathering trading cards, there's, let me find an example. You've got modern frame and so there's two different types of Mad Gathering trading cards. You've got yeah. modern okay. frame over here and the old border here, right? You see they like this, they look a little bit different. So pre-modern is only the cards that were print, printed in the old frame. And so this is a restricted card pool. This card pool never changes, right? And so this is like an active effort by the community to like say, hey, we like this game. We like a version of this game that exists and we want you guys to just kind of fuck off. Like we want to go play this game in a way that never changes. And you see that a lot with vintage players too, where it's like what magic is to them is like this very specific thing. You see people who play cube draft, right? Like a lot of the yeah. demand at this point for people, for Black Lotuses, for like these cards, I'm not convinced is really driven by the loud demographic that's upset about it. Yeah, a lot of stuff has lost a lot of value, 
But like some of the core things and some of the core demand hasn't really changed. And like this is where I don't think we're at yet with NFTs. We're like, yeah, I know tons of magic players that don't care about prices for their cards. They're like, I bought these at some point for whatever price. I will probably die owning these cards and it's up to my estate yeah. to liquidate them. Like this is just like it's not about money for them. It's just like their nostalgia, their love for the game. And maybe they do sell at some point. Like maybe they need liquidity. Like there are people who I know who like, yeah, I, I have forty thousand dollars of cardboard. I need to sell that. Yeah. My mortgage is due. Like <laughs> that's fair, yeah. right? But like Magic's at a point where there's so many people who have enough money who collect it, who are at a point of nostalgia with it, that like they're just never gonna sell. And I see this a little bit in NFTs. There's some people who I know who like, you know, they had like 0.05% of their net worth in NFTs. They had their forever PFP and it doesn't matter. Like it's down no. 90%. It could be yeah. up 90%. It's just not an asset they're looking to sell because that to me is like the true collectible. The true collectible yeah. is where people buy and never look at price and it's just in their collection, right? Yeah. And I don't think most NFTs are at that point yet. We may yeah. see that happen, but too many people who enter the space are at a financial point where like the real bull case for NFTs, if people buy, like collect and hold forever the stuff that they have. And you see that sometimes. Like I see that mostly in like, there's people with board apes. They've held since mint. They're not selling. Yeah. They, they've been rich, punks. they've been poor, yeah. like whatever, right? You see that punks, like there's, yeah. you know, they're forever punks. And I, just, I think that like, one of the things that will make that happen more is less volatility. I don't know yeah. if we see yeah. less volatility in NFTs. That may just never be an intrinsic factor. But like, you know, I was at a magic tournament actually last weekend. It was the North American like legacy championships. And I was like, um, Talking to some people, they're like, man, like, you know, our cards are down so much. And they're down like 10, 20%. I'm like, yeah. oh, have I got a story you for know. you about something that's yeah. down a lot more than that that's collectible, right? And so, like, yeah. but they used to move more, right? It's just that the, the market's matured. It's kind of settled down. I don't know that we see that maturity in settling down, but I think that we've seen that a little bit in, like, I think I think we may see that a little bit more in the next cycle where, like, even, even in this bear market, like, the volatility on punks, like, punks have drifted in the last, like, six months between... Like their low was 60 grand and their high was like 112. Yeah. Right. And so like, that's not like that volatile relative to even, you know, the price of Ethereum. And so it's just kind of interesting to see where, where things are shaking out. Um, Spencer, so many conversations I think we could continue having, but just running out of time here. Love the conversation. Um, I asked the same last two questions from every guest. Um, first being, where can people find you on websites, social media, uh, and two, what's like one last message to leave with the audience? Yeah, so um, you can find me on social media. My at on Twitter is at SGSAND, S-G-S-A-N-D-1. Um, I should probably get a nicer Twitter app than that, but that's what it is. Uh, you can also find my website is um, spencer.vc. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R dot Victor Charlie. Um, or you can email me at hello at spencer.vc. Love to hear from everyone. Um, if you're interested in that, if you're interested in lofting, what we're doing the syndicate, those are both great places to find me. Um, just reach out. I'm a pretty easy person to get a hold of. Um, my last message to everyone is, you know, I think if, if, like we're in a really exciting space. It's really easy to get really caught up in it. Like nobody ever went broke from taking profits. <laughs> Don't invest more than you can afford to lose. Yeah. And understand that everything we're doing is a grand experiment and nobody really knows what they're doing in NFTs. Like anyone who tells you they're an NFT expert, that anything is a short bet, like you just yeah. run. It's just that yeah. simple. Yeah. Because the yeah. truth is, this shit's been around for like two years, yeah. right? Nobody's an expert. The smartest people I know in the space that lead the biggest projects, they'll, they'll openly talk about they don't know what's going on because nobody knows what's going on because we have to create what's going on. And so like, if you think about anything as anything other than that, 
then you're in the space for the wrong reasons and you're probably taking more risk than you should, right? Like this is, I cannot think of anything that is more risky and volatile than this. Like I own a lot of my networks in trading cards, a lot of my networks yeah. in private, in, in ven, seed stage venture investments. Yeah. And still the most risky thing that I own is crypto NFTs. Yeah. If you want that risk, if you love that risk, then it's the perfect place to be, but understand it and manage it appropriately and trim positions when they become overweight. Yeah. Sorry, that was like many things, but no, that, that these are so all much very reality. helpful things. Yeah. Very helpful things. And Spencer, I'd love to get you a, like part two. Cause I feel like we just scratched the surface for a lot of these topics, but once again, thank you for coming on. Appreciate everything that you've told us. Awesome. Well, if, if people want a part two, let us know and we can make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Spencer. Thanks for listening to the new street X podcast. You can learn more about Spencer and Spencer Ventures in the show notes. To know more about New Street, visit NewStreet.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.